On a recent occasion, I'm setting a timer here. On a recent occasion, I had the privilege of being in Beirut. Or it was actually the Walmart in Fort Oglethorpe. And while I was there, horrible things happened. Horrible things happened. And I was stuck in this area. And I began to understand why Walmart has such low prices. It's because either everyone is out picketing their low wages or they just don't pay wages because they don't hire anyone. There were 1,000 of us in a little sheep pen of human misery, all looking for someone who could help us, who could give us some guidance. And there was no one there. No one there to help. And just people frazzled and confused and dazed. I looked around and decided that the best place to go was to where they sell the guns. It was the, long, it was the shortest line and... So I was standing behind one guy who was there purchasing a firearm. And I did not know his intentions with the firearm. I would not have blamed him if he had nefarious intentions with it. Who can blame a person what happens to you in Walmart? And I have, you have my public pledge, I shall never visit the one in Fort Oglethorpe again. So help me God. But this fellow was trying to buy this gun, and much to his great aggravation and chagrin, there was some kind of hiccup with the backgrounding process. And so it couldn't happen right away. And the young boy, the poor young boy who was helping him, was explaining, I'm sorry, sir, I don't, they don't tell us the reasons. I don't know what's happened. When it comes through, we'll call you. We'll let you know. The man was aggravated, and as he began to walk away, he said, "Ah, it's all right, it's all right. I know it ain't your fault. But Lord, I sure hope this don't have something to do with Obamacare because none of us are going to get our firearms if it does. <laughs> and as I sat there, not a little stunned and deeply amused, I then took my place in line and the guy said, Can I help you? And I started to laugh. <laughs> a silly, ridiculous smile. And a little chuckle from within that I could not share with the boy. Just to think of all the dangers, of all the trauma that's trickling down from the evil Obamacare to Northwest Georgia Walmarts. (laughs) Keeping us from firearms. And it was clear to me as I left that place that all is not well. It's certainly not well at the Walmart. I've never once felt good in a Walmart. I have often felt horrible at Walmart. But so is the case when you think about this season that we're in. It is very easy, I imagine most of you realize, to understand that there's so much about our lives, so much about your family, so much about your work, that is just not well. It's not right. And it's aggravating. And it's deeply alarming. And you want to blame somebody. Surely it's President Obama's fault. Surely Obamacare is the source of my miseries. I just want a shotgun. Well, over the Advent season, what we're going to look at is this phrase that I've borrowed from Julian of Norwich, this 
Anchoress Nun, who was married to Christ. And in a vision, I think in the 12th century, this, this woman had a vision of Christ. And in it, he says something to the effect that, that sin must be, but all shall be well. And all shall be well, and all manner of thing shall be well. That really does capture capture the hope of Advent. When we look at God's coming into a world of unwellness in our skin, to begin to undo our demise, and the hope that one day He is going to come back to make all things truly deeply, lastingly, well. But right now, they are not well. And so as we look at primarily 1 John 3, just a small part of what is offered there from the beloved apostle, I want you to consider these three things during Advent. I want you to lower your expectations. I want you to ground your expectations. And I want you to raise your expectations. First this, lower your expectations. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world doesn't know us is that it didn't know Him. Dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. What we will be. What we will be, what will be, has not yet been made known. It is very important to lower your expectations. Have you heard or seen the movie, The Grinch Who Stole Christmas? John Kerry plays this very vile and frightening looking fellow. Disarming to young children, I imagine it is to me. And as the Grinch, in this story that's really about the rehabilitation and conversion of the Grinch. He is trying to steal Christmas, and he's in the home of Cindy Lou Who. Or Cindy Lou, I don't know. And he's masquerading as Santa Claus, and she catches him in the act of this masquerade, and he forgets for a moment, and she says, Santa Claus, what is the real meaning of Christmas? Forgetting that he's masquerading as he is, he answers without Thinking to the question, what is the meaning of Christmas? He says with alarming certainty, vengeance. (laughs) Vengeance is the meaning of Christmas. And I think, huh, that is an unwitting answer that many of us might give. If someone were describing how we act at Christmas time, think of the joys of getting to be with your family. Having to be with your family? Getting to be with your family? I'll let you decide the verb. But you know what happens at Christmas so often? And it doesn't just happen at Christmas, it happens all over the place, is that you start to have quite lofty and generous expectations about other people coming through for you. You're, a whale, you're well aware of the unwellness of the world. You're well aware of, of, of longings that you have that would be met. And so you start to place an impossible burden of godhood on all manner of things, including people, events, The kids are all coming home at Christmas, which should be a source of rejoicing, but the amount of expectation you put on it is suffocating. And it's like a kind of vengeance that you're perpetrating, your Christmas joy, you're getting people with it, or they don't come through for you. 
They don't reciprocate the way they ought. They don't love you the way you ought, the way you think they ought. And so you, you give them the cold shoulder. You, you're filled with resentments. You're filled with Christmas vengeance that you may not be able to name because it's impolite. Well, if you listen to John, who is, without you realizing, telling us about this time between the first advent and the second, the first appearing of Jesus and the second, he's reminding us that what we shall be has not yet been made known to us, which is to say, things are not well now. And it is incumbent upon us to realize as we walk around in our world, should you expect everything to be well? Should you expect everything in your family to go swimmingly all the time? When you're the kind of people that Jesus had to come, abandon his wealth and come to earth to suffer for, so that we could be released from our curved in on ourselves virus? You should expect sorrows. You should expect that there are going to be conflicts. You should expect that things are not going to be as they should and that you're not going to respond sometimes as you should. Because what we shall be has not yet been revealed. We're not done yet. So you've got to readjust your hope and lower your expectations. And next you've got to ground your expectations. What do I mean by that? John says, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. In the NIV, there are two exclamation points. In the original Greek manuscript, there's no punctuation. But you know what? They're capturing something. They realize that John is feeling, that he's remarking when he talks about being the children of God as something that's utterly remarkable and is worthy of two exclamation points. And that is what we are! Exclamation point. We are children of God. The love that he's lavished on us. Exclamation point. He realizes it's a reality worth grounding all of your hopes and expectations in. He's, he's, he's hinted at the same thing that the hymn writer wrote when he says, Till he appeared and the soul felt his worth, its worth. A thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices. See, even though all is not well, there is one grounding fact of your reality. You start the day. You start every morning. Overcast, muddy mornings. Uncharacteristically warm and sunny mornings. You start every one of them if you're a believer in Jesus, as someone who has been pre-loved by God. You may not realize this. There's a lot of people in here who are trying to be awfully good. But if, you, if you're able to pull them off to the side, you're able to get them in a quiet room by themselves, maybe give them a few malt beverages first to loosen things up, And they didn't think they had to impress you. And they didn't think they had to use any particular religious language to make it sound right. And you started pressing a little bit. You know what you might find? Some of you might find it. Some of you actually hate God. What? No, we're at church. But you know what can happen? See, sometimes if you think God is someone who can't be pleased... 
If you think someone, God is, God is kind of looking down at you with a constant snarly frown, nothing you ever do is good enough, nothing's ever right enough, and you feel like you keep trying. There are times when you realize as soon as then something bad happens to you, you're irate, you want to run away from him, and in your deepest heart of hearts, you might want to say, I hate you! What is wrong with you? Why won't you do something for me? Martin Luther, chief architect by accident of the Protestant Reformation, felt the same way. He recognized that beneath all of his tremendous works of righteousness, all of his vows of poverty, all of his fasting, all of his confessing, a man who everybody would look at and say, that is one righteous dude sold out for God. And he would say, I realized that underneath it all, I hated God because I thought he was someone who could not be pleased. It is not fair. In the biography of Martin Luther made into a film, he says to Johann Staupitz, his confessor, it is not fair. He cannot be pleased. And if you know that feeling, no matter how hard I try, no matter what I do, he can't be pleased. You know what you're not going to do? You're not going to start your day confident and secure that you are adored by God. There's not going to be any exclamation point when you talk about God. There might be seething anger. There might be self-righteousness that makes everybody around you feel like they're in Walmart. But there won't be any exclamation points of joy that help you walk out into the world as a secure person who knows that you've started the day loved. Wendell Berry understood this. He wrote a poem to his mother. It's called, brilliantly enough, To My Mother. And listen to this because I think it captures the way we're meant to to begin the day, the way we're meant to ground our expectations. He says, to my mother, I was your rebellious son. Do you remember? Sometimes I wonder if you do remember. So complete has your forgiveness been. It's hard to listen to poetry. He's saying, Mom, I was your rebellious son, but do you remember that? There are times when I even, I can imagine by the way that you treat me that you don't even remember my rebellion. That's how, how, how comprehensive and sweeping, like a, like, like a sidewalk in the rain, that you've washed me clean. He says, so complete has your forgiveness been, I wonder sometimes if it didn't precede my wrong. There are times, he says, that I'm starting to imagine that you had already decided to forgive me before I could even violate your love. And I erred, safe found, within your love prepared ahead of me the way home or my bed at night so that almost I should forgive you who perhaps foresaw the worst I might do and forgave me before I could act causing me to smile now, looking back to see how paltry was my worst compared to your forgiveness of it. Do you see what he's saying? It causes me to smile when I think about this relationship that I have with you, this relationship where it's almost as if you had prepared a kind of environment of love that I could not outrun the coverage of. 
that somehow or another, no matter what I was going to do, it was all going to be preceded by this great Herculean affection that you had for me. Compared to your forgiveness of me, my badness just seems minuscule. Now, how do you ground yourself in the love of God? One thing, realize that John says that Jesus appeared that he might take away our sins. That we are loved by God. Children, do you realize that the first coming of Jesus, the incarnation, the crucifixion, these things did not happen last Tuesday? You're aware of this, right? They did not happen in 2013. They happened 2,000 years ago. Do you know why that's substantial? One reason, you can't mess it up. God has acted. He has acted to undo anything that would stand between you and God because he wanted you. And you can't mess it up. And so in the same way that Barry's talking about his mother, that's what John means for us to see here, amazingly... That's our cue, so you don't have to be like the man at the nursing home tapping your watch. Barry knows what John is saying here, that the way you start your day with God is as the object of his prior affection. You are pre-loved. Inasmuch as you're able to breathe that in, And as much as you're able to act as if that's true, even when you don't feel it. Because, you know, when you're loved by somebody, you don't walk around saying, I'm so loved by my dad, I'm so loved by my dad, I can't, I'm so excited, I'm so loved by my dad. Nobody does that. If they do, they have a mental problem. Nobody does that. When you're really well loved, you're not going around thinking about the love all the time. You know what you're doing? You're just not thinking about it. You're just free. You're not scared. You're not worried about someone's disapproval. You know that there's comfort for you. You know there's security for you. You know that there's rest for you. And here's what God says. I dare you at Advent to believe it. When all is unwell, believe and act as if it's true that you have been pre-loved. And my forgiveness is so total that any badness you can concoct and any half-obedience that you can offer is paltry compared to it. You don't have to worry about that. You just ground yourself in my love so that you... Start the day as a loved person. You start the day not on trial, not on probation. There's nobody in here who will ever be able to handle the unwellness of the world if you're not convinced of the love of God for you. The second suffering strikes, and you don't believe in his love, you'll start accusing him or President Obama or your husband, or yourself. And John says, we are children of God because we've been born of him because of what Jesus has done for us. Lower your expectations, ground your expectations in the love of God, and then raise your expectations. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Part of the reason that we get so frustrated, so aggravated, is we have an expectation that everything should go swimmingly, and we actually have appallingly low aspirations for ourselves. Some of our best moments were just aspiring to be people who are unbothered. 
Really, right? Isn't that right? You just want to have enough money and enough comfort so that nothing can really bother you. Well, you see, John here is saying, the second advent that we look forward to, the unwellness of the world is going to be all made well, and we're going to be made like Jesus. And it's important to raise your expectations here at Advent to realize God is up to way more in each one of you than you ever imagined. He wants you to become like his son. That's his aspiration. So he looks at the neighborhood, the dilapidated, run-down neighborhood, and enters into his own gentrification project. He sees the house that we're in. He sees our lives and how ramshackled it is. And he says, I see a lot of promise there. Paul Tripp talks about his father-in-law who went into a rough Miami neighborhood and he saw what looked like a crack house. Shutters falling, the paint falling off the siding, trash all in the yard, sagging floors, mildew and grossness. And his father-in-law says, I think I want to buy that. Because I see a lot of promise there. We forget sometimes that the aggravations, the trouble, the unwellness of the world that visits us is all a means that Jesus is working in us to eventually make us like him. So you've got to raise your expectations and realize God's up to way different things than you are. His primary goal is not that you have a, a magnificent Christmas that satisfies all your deepest longings. You might get a pretty good one by his kindness. It might even be better if you're able to lower your expectations, ground yourself in the love of God, and then raise your expectations to realize that no matter what is happening to you, it's all a sign, not of God's unlove, but a sign of his believing there's promise in you that he wants to make you more like him. He who has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. At the end of the Grinch... Something unusual happens. He thinks he's having a heart attack. He's stolen all the Christmas. All the toys in the town are in a big bag on a tall cliff. He's about to push it off, and suddenly he thinks he's having a heart attack. Ooh, uh, uh, he does and starts to fall down. What's happening to me? I feel, he says. And then suddenly he says, I feel Toasty and warm inside. I'm leaking. He's crying. Not... And he looks over at the toys falling off the cliff, about to fall off the cliff. And he says, oh no, the toys, the bag of toys, they're going to fall and all be destroyed. And then he says this telling thing. And I care. The toys are about to be destroyed, which is what he was up to in the first place. And I care. Because you know what happened? A heart got hatched in him. And John envisions that the people of God are people in whom the divine life has hatched a heart. A whole new principle of life is going. The divine seed is what he calls it. A new principle of life is going on in us. And that's why he says, no one who has seen him continues to sin or either seen or known him. He's not talking about actually just like sinning from time to time because he's already told us, if you say you don't sin, you're a liar. He's talking about sin being the prevailing force of your life that you now obey yourself. You march to the tune of your own drum. And once a heart is hatched in you, 
once you've been acted on, not by the devil anymore, but by Jesus himself, suddenly you find yourself like the Grinch saying, and I care. I care about pleasing God. I care about wanting to know his love. I care about wanting to take the unwellness of others onto me. I care about wanting to do what Jesus wants me to do. I care. And knowing that all the care that you have is preceded by his prior care of you. Let's pray.